Greetings and welcome to the second ever news report here in the Mediatown News. I am your mayor and host, Josh, and today I would like to first start off with a few corrections to episode one. I had mistakenly gotten some wrong information from a few sources, and I'd like to open up with, with some corrections there. I had made the mistake of conflating the coastal gaslink pipeline and the trans mountain pipeline. The indigenous population is protesting both, but specifically the Wet'suwet'en people are protesting the Gaslink pipeline being run through their territory. So that was just my fault for conflating those two separate incidents. The truly objectionable thing that I had said mistakenly was that the RCMP were actively gunning down tribespeople. While there have been arrests, and some sources claim that there have been arrests made at gunpoint, no one is actively reporting any casualties. That needs to be made clear. For now, at the very least, I am only one person unfortunately reading and trying to synthesize dozens of articles and news stories. That being said, in order to give myself enough time to ensure accurate coverage, I was grappling, if you recall, in the last episode with how to structure the, the schedule for this podcast. And because of this, I realized that I cannot do this on a daily basis with my current full-time job. So to give myself proper prep time to research these stories and cover them better, I will be trying to maintain a bi-weekly upload schedule instead. But as a follow-up to that original cover, I will go in-depth this time and follow up on the coastal gasoline pipeline and the wet sweating people. To start off, I'll provide some proper context to the conflict. And the first thing to note is that while there are 20 elected First Nation councils that have signed agreements with the Coastal Gas Link over its natural gas pipeline, the clan chiefs, the hereditary chiefs, say the pipeline has no authority to run through their traditional territory, and this is from Global News. The chiefs claim that while elected council members administer small reserves, hereditary chiefs are the true authority over the 22,000 square kilometers of land. So these chiefs remain staunchly in opposition to the pipeline, and as long as they remain against it, the pipeline cannot run through their land. But there is one curious detail that I think is worth mentioning, and that's just a simple question. Why is the coastal gasoline pipeline such a hot button issue to begin with? First, I will lay some groundwork. The National Post and CTV News British Columbia branch provided a timeline of events and I'll go over what I consider to be key moments of the dispute as they develop, interjecting with supplementary information as it becomes relevant. There are many points of consideration dating back to 2014, but for the sake of streamlining, I'll be getting with the 2018 announcement. BC Premier Jack Horgan, back on October 2nd, 2018, announced provincial support for liquefied natural gas's $40 billion gas plant in Kitimat. To export the gas, Coastal Gas Link would build a 670-kilometer pipeline. The plan was supported by some elected band chiefs whose land the pipes would be running through. Chiefs whom are, remember, beneath the hereditary chiefs, but were given their title and power under the Indian Act. 
an act rife with problems for indigenous peoples and the effects of that will be the driving factor in the resistance. So fast forward over a year onto New Year's Eve of 2019, the BC Supreme Court grants CGL, Coastal Gas Link, an injunction calling for the removal of any obstructions, including cabins and gates on any roads, bridges or work sites the company has been authorized to use. And in response, the very next day, CGL is served an eviction notice by the chiefs on the grounds of trespassing unceded territory. Fast forward again to the end of January and the Wet'suwet'en chiefs have agreed to a 7-day meeting with the province, but by February 5th, the talks have failed. So in response, on February 6th, the next day, the RCMP are mobilized to enforce the court injunction. They begin to arrest opponents of the pipeline. This spurred a massive wave of outreach from the rest of Canada, and on February 12th, after a wave of solidarity outpouring, two of the hereditary chiefs begin a constitutional challenge of fossil fuel projects. However, the arrests continue, and on February 18th, the Conservatives advocate for continued forced removals, but the Liberals and their minority coalitions continue to advocate for talking, while arrests were still being made anyway, so I guess for what that's worth. On February 20, the Federal Public Safety Minister, Bill Blair, says the RCMP is offering to move its officers from Wet'suwet'en territory. Incredibly gracious of them, considering they were already trespassing on the land to begin with. And the next day, Justin Trudeau calls for the end of railway blockading that had been occurring in earnest since early February. He calls the situation unacceptable and points fingers at the indigenous leaders, accusing them of not being receptive to government attempts at negotiation. Gee, I can't imagine why! Now, I have focused primarily on the native side of this recap because I believe it to be the true heart of the story. The solidarity that many Canadians share with them is commendable, but the real story to me is that the leaders, the true leaders among the indigenous people, want their land rights respected. The Globe and Mail reported that the elected officials, the band chiefs, in favor of the pipeline, are seen by the opponents as illegitimate leaders due to the colonial origin of their power thus creating this deadlock um, internally to begin with. Of course, the environmental debate is one I consider to be over even before it began. Considering the logic put forth by the pro-pipe faction, as they consider the pipeline worth the worst-case scenario of a burst, which the inevitability of is damning in and of itself, this is, of course, without fear-mongering the potential for an explosion or death of humans, animals, plants, etc. Even without bursting, the environmental damage is still a concern, but zooming in from the macro issue of environmentalism to something more personal, the pipe's projected path includes many places of spiritual significance to the tribe. Naturally, the Wet'suwet'en proposed an alternative route, which was rejected, one of the reasons being it would go through different BC communities and cause other disruptions and safety concerns, though according to Global News, these concerns go conspicuously unmentioned. Lastly, I will leave you all with this, a kind of unifying bow to this story so far, and what I think will be the legacy of this pipeline, whether it ends up being built or not. And that is this phrase, Reconciliation cannot be achieved at gunpoint, said by Stuart Phillip, the BC Grand Chief. There is an interview conducted by the CBC that I think anyone who wants to cut to the heart of this matter should read, 
The head chief, who is used to the dealings of these corporations and their complete disregard for indigenous lives and land, lay bare many inconvenient facts, dismantling the myth of this kind of neo-trickle-down economics that the pipeline will create sustainable economic growth for its people vis-a-vis -vis jobs thanks to LNG and CGL. I think personally that, again, this pipeline should not be built, neither should the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I think a pivot towards renewable energy is much more sustainable in the long term, much more environmentally friendly, and is just a better policy because everyone benefits, including the indigenous people. But moneyed interests typically win out in the end, and there are billions of dollars at stake, so I can't imagine that they are going to allow these people to keep their land when there is so much money to make. But turning away from such a heavy and a little depressing topic to something I guess also depressing but more lighthearted in a sense is Mayor, former Mayor Pete, Peter Buttigieg. Former Mayor Pete has had a, let's say, rough relationship with black people in his local town of South Bend, Indiana, and his support amongst them ranges anywhere from 0% to 5% nationally. This is in no small part due to his firing of the police chief, the first African-American police chief in South Bend, Daryl Boykins. And while there's a lot to be dug up in that, I recommend Jonathan Larson's report from TYT for the full story there. What I would like to focus on is his continued efforts to try and regain black support in just weirdly dishonest ways. First, he sent out an email to black leaders in South Bend about his proposed Douglas plan, claiming that you had to opt out of sponsoring the deal as opposed to the traditional and accepted method of asking for support. Is You know, don't assume you have people's support and tell them they have to opt out of it. That is incredibly disingenuous. And it seems former Mayor Pete has not learned his lesson because now he has claimed that comedian and celebrated black actor Keegan-Michael Key endorsed him for president, when in reality, Mr. Key was merely trying to get voter turnout in Nevada. Seriously, that's it. He was trying to get voter turnout in Nevada, and for whatever reason, Buttigieg thought, Yes, he clearly supports me. Let's be real here. He didn't think that he was merely trying to lie to gain black support and it backfired. Because of course it would. Why would he think that that would work? Pete Buttigieg is honestly a fascinating creature that I would love to do a full piece on. Because his story is one of ambition and self-made manness and more importantly, lies, and his lies are incredibly revealing about the kind of man that he is. Yes, he's the first openly gay candidate for the presidency, but his support from his own demographic, LGBTQ plus people, is actually the lowest of all the candidates, including Joe Biden, an expressed homophobe for decades. At least this was true until Michael Bloomberg, an even bigger homophobe, entered the race. Now Pete is only the second lowest, all according to a morning consult poll. And our final story for the evening is the Nevada Democratic Debate and the Death of Democracy. 
While Bernie Sanders swept the caucus with a massive 20-point margin over his nearest competitor and is primed to do well in South Carolina, the Nevada Democratic debate really bears focusing in on more, I believe. There were two primary points made in that debate. One is that Michael Bloomberg might be even worse than Trump somehow, and two, that the Democratic Party does not believe in democracy. For some ungodly reason, Michael Bloomberg decided to run in this primary, and when he showed up to that debate, Elizabeth Warren was waiting for him with a steel chair, and she went to town all over his reputation, destroying him. And rightly so. He deserves it. The guy is just awful. His policies, the things that he believes in, the things that he fights for are so opposed, so diametrically opposed to the needs of the working class in America that I truly believe that were he to become president, America would never be able to recover. Aside from the fact that an oligarch was able to buy their election wholesale, it would only spur on the continued involvement of other billionaires eventually trying to one-up each other for the people's attention. But much more substantially than that, the final question of the night was posed by Chuck Todd asking each candidate in turn if the candidate with the majority of delegates going into the convention, which in layman's terms, who won, if they would support that candidate for the nominee. And of course, everyone except Bernie said no. They would want the superdelegates on the second ballot to decide the nominee, which would override the will of the people unless they also happen to choose Bernie, but the chances of that given the cable news cycle we've seen over the past year would indicate otherwise. The obvious danger this poses to American democracy and the world at large given their likely choices Bloomberg is quite horrifying and deserves much more scrutiny than it is receiving currently. But that is all for now. Thank you again for joining me for another episode and I urge you all to watch this space.